Hi, and welcome to Pillsbury's Industry Insights Podcast, where we discuss current legal and practical issues in finance and related sectors. I'm Joel Simon, a partner at the international law firm Pillsbury Winthrop Shaw Pittman. Our guest today is Anne Idsel Austin. Anne is a nationally recognized environmental lawyer who has held several high-profile federal and state regulatory roles. As a partner who recently joined Pillsbury's environmental and natural resources practice, she provides strategic consulting and policy advice, helping clients navigate the dynamic regulatory and legal waters in an era of energy transition, decarbonization, and an emphasis on ESG principles. Prior to joining Pillsbury, Anne was the Principal Deputy Assistant Administrator for the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency's Office of Air and Radiation, known as OAR or OR, where she had primary oversight over United States clean air policy and regulation. Prior to that, she served as the EPA Regional Administrator for Region 6, overseeing all federal environmental programs in Texas, Louisiana, New Mexico, Oklahoma, and Arkansas. Prior to joining EPA, Anne held several positions where she shaped environmental and energy policy at the highest levels of government in the state of Texas. Welcome to our podcast, Anne. Thanks so much. It's great to be here today, Joel. And I'm really excited for this chance to speak with you because there's so much going on at the federal environmental policy level, and it would be great to have someone really knowledgeable present this to us in an organized fashion. So with that minor task ahead of you, could you start us off with a brief overview of the environmental regulatory landscape? Absolutely, Joel. I would be happy to. Um, and while uh, I, <laughs> I, I appreciate the humor about this not exactly being a minor task, I will make the best of it. Um, I think the two really big key considerations that are driving all of the major regulatory actions under this administration are the topics of climate change and environmental justice. So all of the language you're hearing out of the White House, press statements or out of uh, the natural resource agencies or agencies within any jurisdiction here is big, it's bold, and it's very aspirational. And if you want examples of what to look for, I would recommend anybody go check out the initial executive orders issued under the new administration. They talk about a one government approach, uh, that we're going to go where the science takes us, and that they're taking an all hands on deck approach. This is with the general idea of really um, initiating, pushing, and incentivizing a clean energy and economy transition with an overall goal of reducing carbon dioxide emissions by 50 to 52 percent by 2030. And that is compared to 2005 levels. So that's a lot of work to do on some really, really heavy topics. Um, a little bit more specifically on the topic of environmental justice, just to put a little bit more behind that, although it is tied into uh, kind of the larger uh, efforts being made when it comes to climate change, is that President Biden has directed the EPA and the DOJ to significantly elevate environmental justice efforts, including making it a top priority for EPA's enforcement office, and even going so far as to rename DOJ's environmental division to highlight the equity focus. So the two really do go hand in hand. Now, you're going to have some key limitations of all of these major regulatory actions, which I know that we've seen play out over the next year, but will be especially important for the remainder of the administration. And these are time, resources, and just your basic external and political factors. So let's talk about time for a little bit. A lot of these regulatory actions take a considerable amount of time due to APA um, uh 
timelines and statutory requirements. So that never plays on uh, into anyone's favor. Next, you have uh, the issue of resources, FTEs, full-time employees. They're all still working remotely, and uh, there's a current recruitment effort underway to increase the number of FTE at the agency to get all of this work done. You've also got the budgetary constraint. And then certainly last but not least, um, you've got these external and political factors. You know, you've got the legislative issue here, which is uh, the reconciliation package has not materialized yet, which is viewed as a uh, headline piece of legislation to really uh, set out what what will be going forward and what will be supported um, when it comes to uh, moving the clean energy and clean economy forward. Uh, the executive actions uh, pushing hard on the legislative agenda, but they might need now to really turn to the regulatory agencies with only three years of the first term remaining to achieve these ambitious goals. And then, of course, you've got the judicial side of it. You've got case law and uh, things happening at every judicial level, which is informing how and when those regulations can be developed. Thank you for setting the table with that, Anne. Can you take us through a couple of real-life examples of the key regulatory priorities in action, just to put a little more um, detail around that? Sure. Uh, So the first one I will mention is that of uh, the waters of the United States, which is, you know, affectionately called WOTUS. So the agencies argue that at, at this point in time, the 2020 rule that was promulgated under the previous administration provided less protection and could have allowed a lot more um, in terms of impact in the nation's water than any rule that had preceded it because the, uh, the rule was viewed as pulling back on both the EPA and the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers jurisdiction over you know what qualified as navigable waters. Um, as a result, uh, we've got a proposed replacement rule that was actually published earlier this week on December 7th which would uh, roll things back and go back to retaining the 2015 rules significant impact test. And that was developed by Justice Kennedy in the Rapinos decision. And it would also retain the Rapinos pluralities determination that that the WOTUS definition should be interpreted uh, to be limited by relatively permanent standing or continuously flowing bodies of water connected to traditional navigable waters, so kind of the ephemeral test. So, this is all being done in an effort to reprioritize climate change and EJ as well within the overall, you know, WOTUS priority. The focus uh, when climate change has been discussed has traditionally been um, in in the airspace and air quality. Uh, WOTUS places a greater focus and, and, and has, has asked for comment on uh, climate change impacts on water and water quality. And then when it comes to EJ, there's a, a much greater emphasis that's been placed on co- placed on consultation with tribes and environmental justice communities. Uh, the other one that's of big interest and something that I wor- spend a lot of time working on is uh, the setting of the National Ambient Air Quality Standards, or the NACs. Uh, most specifically here, the reconsideration of the particulate matter, or PM and ozone NACs. Uh, this is an easier tie-in, uh, especially when it comes to seeing how they fit into the larger context of climate change in EJ. When it comes to PM and ozone, there is the belief that adjusting the NAX downward, again, so setting a more conservative standard, is going to further climate change goals um, from a human health and, and an environmental standpoint because it will require uh, industrial facilities, it will require states to make sure that they're going back and um, uh, further restricting uh, permitting levels for uh, various emission limits uh, at at various types of facilities. 
uh, it's going to force them to go back and um, readjust their SIPs, their state implementation plans to meet those NACS goals. Uh, when it comes to EJ, there's also the belief that those NACS um, being more aggressively adjusted in a downward way is going to improve the health and environmental impact specifically in EJ communities because uh, you have the issue of a lot of industrial facilities, manufacturing facilities, refining facilities um, often find themselves uh, near or adjacent to EJ communities. So again, the thought being if you were um, further requiring additional uh, pollution control technologies to be installed at these at these facilities, it's only going to improve the air quality, which will most immediately impact those communities next to them. Um, I would also say that uh, one thing of note on this is that it was only very recently that EPA announced that it was actually going to be reconsidering the 2020 ozone standard. Um, this all, especially where it comes to the NACs, I'll just highlight briefly, ties back into resource constraints that I mentioned at the outset. You've got the same EPA staff working on these sets of NACs and the review. It's the exact same groups of staff. They're smart, professional, they know what they're doing. But again, you have those basic limitations on the same group of people working on traditionally two packages that would be taken up in sequence to one another, not at the same time. Those are both great examples, Anne. I know that water is a global issue, so it's nice to see that being focused on um, by the U.S. for a change. And ozone is something that I recall came to our attention back in the 1980s, so it's interesting to see that grabbing headlines again. What else is on the environmental radar screen that you can tell us about? Oh, man, there's a lot going on. Uh, 2022 is going to be a busy one. Recently, we had the methane proposal that was. Uh, published. Uh, it's very interesting. The preamble language has been proposed, but for those regulatory attorneys out there, y'all would be interested to note, if, if you haven't already, uh, the regulatory text has not yet been proposed. It's a pretty unusual way for EPA to proceed with the rulemaking, and it bears close watching. Uh, we anticipate a supplemental, um, but the initial round of comments are going to be due on uh, mid-January. So it'll be interesting to see whether or not you know, uh, any request for extension or processed or not, and then uh, figure out what the timing on the supplemental is going to look like. The other thing that's coming up in the way of litigation is uh, that related to ACE, the Affordable Clean Energy Rule. Uh, the Supreme Court recently granted writ of cert on what could be a very significant case post-Massachusetts v. EPA, assuming it, assuming it gets scheduled. You know, I'm sure anybody that watches the SCOTUS docket has noticed that they've um, opted to take on uh, a, a very interesting uh, case load. So um, it'll be very, very interesting to see whether or not it does up, ultimately wind up being scheduled and will bear close watching. Uh, last is a PFOA and PFOS. These are the forever chemicals that have been discussed in recent news. EPA is taking that all of agency approach that I mentioned earlier under its PFOS roadmap and is setting new target dates. Uh, also, uh, the Office of Air and Radiation is scheduled to add PFOS to the hazardous air pollutants list next fall, which is a pretty concrete development on that front as well. In the remaining time we have, Anne, can you just give us a very brief uh, snapshot of what you're seeing on the ESG front uh, from your regulatory perspective? Absolutely. Something that I think is uh, in a very interesting, and I'll focus here on the E of ESG, the environmental component, 
there's a lot that uh, folks are looking at it and, and anticipate coming out of SEC. What has perhaps not garnered as much attention is that the Biden administration has asked the EPA uh, to work with the SEC to make sure that uh, that level of expertise and policy um, background is being shared with the SEC to best inform how the SEC develops their ESG regulatory framework going forward. Again, this gets to that all-of-government approach, leveraging the expertise that's in-house across various agencies. And I'm personally very interested to see whether or not the SEC is going to utilize uh, the EPA's GHD reporting uh, requirements and databases and perhaps um, use that as a model going forward. Wow, that's a lot to digest. Thank you, Anne, for that great overview of the environmental policy initiatives at the top of the Biden administration's agenda. It sounds like you have some busy years ahead of you, and we really appreciate your great insights and hope to see you again when we can do a deeper dive together on some of these issues. It's been great having you on our podcast. Joel, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure to visit with you today. And now it's time for This Week in History. This week, we celebrate the 75th anniversary of an iconic holiday classic film, Frank Capra's It's a Wonderful Life, which was released on December 20th, 1946. The movie has a great cast, starring Jimmy Stewart as George Bailey, Donna Reed as Mary Hatch, and Henry Travers as Clarence, an angel trying to earn his wings. Although it bombed at the box office and received mixed reviews at the time, It's a Wonderful Life has become a holiday and all-time favorite, surpassing all expectations. Interestingly, the film may owe its enormous popularity to a legal technicality. The film's copyright lapsed in 1974 for a period of 20 years. As a result, it was shown on television continuously and for free, developing an enormous and devoted audience. Its success came as a bit of a surprise to Frank Capra, though. When he pitched Jimmy Stewart on the plot, Capra said to Stewart, that doesn't sound so good, does it? But Stewart, always a good judge of scripts, replied, Frank, if you want me to be in a picture about a guy that wants to kill himself and an angel comes down named Clarence who can't swim and I save him, when do we start? Although I can't imitate his voice, it isn't hard to imagine Jimmy Stewart saying exactly that with his wry smile. The film was nominated for five Academy Awards, is recognized by the American Film Institute as one of the 100 best American films ever made, and is number one on its list of the most inspirational American films. If you're one of the few who haven't seen it yet, I urge you to do so. It just might restore your faith in humanity. You can catch all our episodes on your favorite streaming services, including Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and Audible, or on our website, PillsburyLaw.com. Until next time, thank you for listening to Pillsbury's Industry Insights Podcast. Podcast.